0: I would move heaven, hell, and anything in between to get to you. You wouldn't be safe anywhere if I was mad at you. And that's not bold, that's truth. I've went up against people. You could pull a gun on me, and if I'm mad at you, I'm coming forward. You'd have to shoot me to stop me. And if you don't kill me, Next time you see me
1: Back to This Is Hardcore Podcast You just heard Pull Your Card The track is Beg For Mercy From their EP, Bandcamp Beg For Mercy Pull Your Cards" from Los Angeles, California We'll have the links, TIHC Podcast For me, I wanted to make sure that people checked out this band Uh, Unfortunately, we are not playing in West Coast this weekend and we would have been sharing the stage with these guys. And I saw an amazing video of them at the midnight hour covering Shadow Realm. And was looking forward to playing with them. We are rescheduling the date. So at the minimum, for now, world, check out, pull your card. Fucking awesome. And hopefully you'll hear more from them. And I look forward to sharing the stage with them at the midnight hour, which is fucking sick. DIY venue in the San Fernando Valley of Lowly, California. This is the podcast, the third podcast that I have an interview with one of my favorite people on earth, Sonny Singh, and we go down some different rabbit holes and discuss stuff that's been going on lately, and I hope you enjoy it before I let you off the hook you know we do the thing Where I talk about upcoming shows So Be ready for you uh, September 18th At the Photo Club Warn Never Again Grand Scheme Payload Mobile Terror Unit I've been talking about this show Mobile Terror Unit the most dangerous band in North America Warn Probably one of the hardest voices Out of a fast hardcore band from Wilkes Bar Never Again Still killing it So fucking awesome and I don't know much about grand scheme or payload, sorry. Make sure to check that out. And then Pave for Pain, peroxide blonde, MX Lonely, Ultralight, and Holy Mountain. Uh, that's five days later on Friday, the twenty third, at the photo club. And then we've got the Carbonite Like a Sickness record release with shackled statement of pride, Adrian and Carried by Six. That's October first. October 8th, Varials, Boundary, Orthodox, Distinguisher, at the church. The very next day, the Life's Questions, world full of record release. With Regulate, Three Knee Deep, Hangman, Invoke, Fixation, Carried by Six. So many crazy shows. Make sure you're going to philly-shows.com or phillyhcshows.com and check out what we got going on. Thank you for supporting the Acacia Strange Show and the Creeping Death Show. Last week, good times to be back in the First Unitarian Church. To, um, 10, oh, I don't want to say 10, um, a year after we had gotten back in there. We had the shows nine eleven and 9 2021, and the show was nine twelve. The church is just as hot as it was when we left it in June with the No Pressure Show. A lot more coming up. Obviously, get your tickets for the Youth of Today show Friday, November 18th. We've got less than 200 of those going. Hope to see some out-of-town friends, but I want to make sure all the young Philly kids can get to it too. And in general, I really hope that you understand some of the things that Sonny and I talk about on this podcast are not just hardcore music related, but related to things in Philadelphia. And I've attached some Wikipedia links For those who would understand, Philadelphia, obviously, it's our homeland. It's the only place I've ever lived. And I've seen the slow walk of gentrification and cleaning up areas. And I feel like this is the, in my 42 years, this is the most rapid-paced onslaught in so many different locations. It's like they were allowing a wound to fester. For years. And getting rid of so many native Philadelphians. Just to prop up all these bullshit houses. And bring all these idiots in. And some of the stuff that Sonny and I talk about. Are related to an area in West Philadelphia. University City. And the displacement of locals who are. Already having a hard time. Having to live in low income housing. And some of you may not give a fuck about this. But this is a thing that you'll see all over the country. And. And. It shouldn't be too much of a surprise. But thank you for tuning in. This is almost, I think it's like three days or two days shy of the two-year anniversary of Sunny being the second episode of This Is Hardcore Podcast. Thank you once again for celebrating the uh, two years of it. And let's fucking go. I'd like to welcome back to the show... Someone who has now been a part of the This Is Hardcore podcast not only two years ago to the day, actually three days after the very first episode that Sonny was on, episode two of This Is Hardcore podcast. But then we had to come back, did we not? Yeah, I forget what episode, probably in the 30s that we had to come back. So, this is episode three, covering one of the closest friends I have in this world, and probably one of the most ubiquitous people in hardcore on planet Earth. Sonny, hate six, as people are fucking up and calling you that now. Sing. You motherfucker. Dude, how many times are you getting hit with hate six? It's so fucking... It's so weird.
2: My mom hit me with it the other day, and I got so mad at her. <laughs> She's, like, "Why are you upset?" I was like, "Mom, you can't be doing that, dude." People don't know how to spell "sunny." It's either they spell it with an "o" or with an "i." I'm like, it's not that hard. It's really not that difficult. Um,
1: was I really on it after? I remember the second episode, the the first episode I did. I don't remember coming back. Yeah, we did it. We did another episode on you, um, specifically. To talk more so, if I remember correctly, it was like when I was like trying to do topical stuff. I'm gonna pull it up. I just gotta go to my T I H E podcast to do it. Uh, actually, I talked about it last uh, last episode because I went through. I went through and ran through every friggin' episode I ever did, and I re- I, I I remember specifically.
2: Was that, were we talking like political coverage or something?
1: Yeah, well, that was what we, it was like using your reach for a positive outcome. And um, I'm pulling it up. I, I know you're, I know you're in like the, I know you're somewhere in the, th- the 30s. Yeah,
2: okay, that sounds familiar.
1: Cause you, you were number two and then we had it. And I, I was going through this thing where I was like, this whole, as, as you talk, we talk about often, like as you progress, in the, what do you want to call it, the, me- the, the, the media programming that you're involved in or just in your own way that you do things. Yeah, you're actually episode number two, then you're episode 42. So pretty fucking cool, to be honest, yeah. if, if you ask me.
2: And what are you up to now? You're, this is, this is uh, 94?
1: 94. Wow. So you know we're keeping you in the loop. We're not shutting you out. You ain't going nowhere.
2: Yeah, I ain't going nowhere. People think people, man. It's it's funny. People are like, uh, my friends have been giving me shit like, oh, good to see you filming hardcore shows again. It's like, listen, I was I was away for a couple of weeks. Like I'm not gonna not film a fucking hardcore show, <laughs> you know, just because I'm taking some time off to do what I want to do. Um, but yeah, I ain't going nowhere. You're not going nowhere.
1: Uh, well, like, so what I was saying is like, as you're as as we build these things up that we do, and it kind of. You know what eight five six started as, which was covered in episode two, so we're not going to go over it. You know what eight five six started as, and where it is now, It's not a straight line. It's I think it's a center of. You started in a center point and just kind of started circling out and hitting things, and then revolving and started hitting cycles of stuff. So, you know, you've you've stayed close to everything that we've been involved in since day one. And now looking at the last, just the last six months, I think you've done not only some of your best work, you've reached some pinnacle, penultimate goals, but you kind of rolled back to stuff that you've always, always been a part of. And I think that that's integral to the person that you are, which is kind of like when you tell me that someone asks you, like, "Oh, it's cool to see you back." It's like my man. (laughs) Like, if there's one, never left. Yeah, not only do you ever left, you haven't even left your morals. In fact, you just kind of continue to hit these bases over and over again, where it's like, okay, cool. Just got done doing something that I never thought I could ever possibly do. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and now turn all my energy back into the components that make Hate 5.6 what it is. And then, you know, your your donations that you pull out is still absolutely fantastic. Your most recent, you donated $10,000 to the Abortion Funds Org. 4600 came from sale of your merch. Another 4600 came from a reviewer who very graciously matched whatever you could raise. And then you had... 806 in revenue from three other voters, and then someone else donated 500 to another cause, which you chose the Save the UCT townhomes, which, to me, you just went from being the fucking dude who just, like, jumped around the country and filmed every fest in the last six months to filming your heroes, like the things that brought you here, everything we talked about in episode two, you come home and you break into a building with a mass of people and you videotape it. <laughs> it's the fucking most chaotic thing. Yeah, but um, I mean yeah, nothing's
2: I've it's just, nothing's changed. If like you said, I've I've if anything, I'm kind of just doubling down on every, on everything I've I've been doing.
1: So in Philadelphia and fortieth of market, there is um these UC townhomes which has always been for low-income subsidy-based housing. And we used to do shows very close to that for anybody who... Now the kids would call it back in the day, which sounds crazy. But um, back in the day when we used to do shows at Philly Funk Live, and way back in the real day when we used to travel out to West Philly for places like the Stalag 13 and Kill Time. And, you know, these are areas where... Things like Drexel, things like UPenn, other things come into the city in the area and they take up massive space. Um, Presbyterian Hospital. There's always these big enterprises that come in. And so the city subsidizes these buildings to try to keep people in the working class in affording housing. And then with the boon of building and the New York City people coming to Philadelphia, they're trying to dem- um, demolish these townhomes and basically move all these families out of this neighborhood and i'll let you take it from there
2: yeah uh so like you said the the uc townhomes have been there it's been low income housing for decades probably at least 40 years uh at 40th and and uh market so essentially right in the heart of upenn and drexel and so that entire area has been you know gentrified built up they've added you know you know, campus buildings, dorms, all that. You know, the, those sort of structures. And so, um, I want to say about a year ago, year and a half ago, um, the the owner of the UC Home Homes, Brett Altman, he had been providing. You know, he owned the Altman family owned this 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 plot of land, and they essentially had a contract with the um, with HUD uh, to provide you know affordable low income housing to. Um, to residents in West Philadelphia. So this area used to be called the Black Bottom. Um, I don't know the full history of it. I, I know it is a very rich history. That's something I'm still learning about, but if, you know uh, people are going to be looking up the history of that area. You definitely want to like Google uh, Black Bottom in Philadelphia. Um, so the Altman uh, family or you know, the Altmans who own it decided to not renew their contract with HUD and essentially are trying to sell that uh, that block uh, of, of of homes for I think a hundred million dollars is is what the current what um, what the worth they're asking for. So they they gave residents I think like a year notice to try to find um, new housing and also provided them or provided some of them with um, housing vouchers. And so part of the issue is that. You know, not everyone has received their vouchers, and the people who have received their vouchers have not been able to find um adequate housing. Cause I don't know if people know this, but you know, it's just because you have uh a voucher doesn't mean you're guaranteed to find housing. So a lot of places, a lot of you know, um landlords are 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 turning down some of these residents who are trying to find the home. And also a lot of these a lot of these a lot of these residents have lived there for decades. So this is all that they know they've, they've grown up there. They've had kids there. And like, we're at a point now, like several generations have lived there. And so to ask them to uproot is um, it's nothing short of violence in a way um, because essentially people, these families feel safe there. There's, there's 70 families, predominantly black families. I think some Latino families as well. um, But this is what they call home. This is where they, they're, they feel safe. They feel safe letting their kids play outside in this community, and to ask them to find somewhere new um, is is you know pretty wild. So that's the 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 current situation, and I think they were supposed to be handed. They were supposed to be delivered eviction notices um, about a week ago. Um, and as far as I heard, that there there was a delay on that, so I don't think the eviction notices have been have been sent out yet. So, and and the other part I wanted to touch on just earlier today I was listening to some interviews with some of the residents who are living there, and you can hear in their voices some of these are you know elderly families, and you know they're being told that they have to leave, and so you can hear the stress that that incurs on on anyone who has to relocate, you know, essentially upward their entire life, their entire life, and, and relocate. So, um, I don't. Think people are always aware of that impact, you know, of just the stress that shit can have on you. So, not not to say it's the same thing at all, but like for example, um, a couple of days ago, after the Gel show at the at the Sonic, my tire blew on the drive home, and so I just drove home essentially on the rim, and I got home, and in the you know, I, I drove to my mom's house because she lives not far from that Sonic. And so in the morning, she's like, "You slept here? What, what's going on?" I said, "Well, yeah. Well, my tire blew, and I was pretty calm about it. I wasn't upset." And so we had talked about it a little bit, saying how, like, pointless it is to get upset about something like that. Yes, it is an inconvenience. Yes, it's going to cost a lot of money to replace a tire, all that stuff. But in the grand scheme of things, like, I have my health. You know, there's people who have it worse, and just stressing out about the littlest things just does nothing but take a toll on your heart and your health so my mom is saying that put you know that in perspective it's like you really you know when something goes wrong you really got to think about the perspective of it so but but anyway like hearing these residents having to deal with relocating it's like you know yes there's the the obvious toll of having to uproot and and find somewhere new but also just that stress adds years to your life. You know what I mean? It's it's something that I don't think people are always aware of about, um, you know, facing difficult times. But um, there was a rally in at City Hall um, about a week ago, where residents from the UC townhomes came to speak about their experience and what's going on. There were hundreds of people who came out in support. Uh, there have been multiple rallies throughout the summer. Um, in support of the UC townhomes, including like encampments that were set up at the at the housing project, um, essentially to block developers from you know coming in and, and either handing out eviction notices, whatever it is. There, there was actually like a uh, a uh, encampment set up. But so about a week ago, we had this rally in Philly. A lot of people came out and, and spoke. I was live streaming the whole thing. Um, I missed unfortunately. I had missed a lot of the Rallies because I was away this summer, traveling, doing doing filmic film fest and bands and things like that. So I was excited to come out and and show my support and 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 do this live stream. So we we did that. We we streamed for you know the, the speakers spoke for about hour and a half, two hours, and then we marched through the city for a little bit, um, and then we caught wind that city developers and city council people were about two blocks away on the eleventh floor having a cocktail party um, focused on you know, urban development and all these sort of things. And, and you know, it's interesting because none of them came to the rally to hear about what, this, what these re- actual residents are dealing with, you know, but here they are, you know, just two blocks away on the 11th floor overlooking the skyline at a $200 per person cocktail party and <laughs> rubbing Damn. elbows, you know, and they're talking about, you know, whatever the fuck there is they're about. So anyway, we, we had overtaken, um, you know, we were on we were by city hall we overtook broad just north of city hall and then we caught wind that they were uh in this building so we essentially stormed the lobby not everyone got in but there were at least 200 people inside the lobby and then a couple hundred more people were outside who just either couldn't get in or they didn't want to come in so we we stormed the lobby and you know some people spoke in the lobby and it was funny because you know we we knew they were th- we knew that they were on the 11th floor so a couple people would you know in small groups of four or five, would take the elevator and go up and 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 try to interrupt that while the rest of us stayed on the ground floor. And then this one of the security guards in the building, and if you watch the live stream, the live stream is still up on YouTube, like the security guard blocks the elevator, and people are getting in his face like, "Are you? Do you really want to stand in the way of hundreds of people who are?" Upset right now and want to confront these city developers. Like, do you really want to be that person blocking us from getting up there? And you can tell he's really trying not to engage with anyone. He's sort of like looking over people's heads and kind of like looking at his, you know, twiddling his thumbs, all that shit, and not really engaging. So, anyway, someone after a few minutes of that, someone yells, Oh, we found the stairwell. It's over here. So we kind of like, we kind of like divert our attention from this guy blocking the, the, the elevators and we just move in mass over to the, the stairwell. So I'm streaming this whole thing. Right. And so I don't cut the stream. So it's like multiple minutes of me walking, ascending 11 flights of stairs and I, I'm carrying all my gear, right? Like I'm live streaming with my normal giant ass cinema camera. I have, I'm carrying a backpack with batteries and extra lenses. And I also have my tripod in a, in a separate little, so I'm carrying all this stuff and I'm like lugging it up all these stairs. and I'm just like really trying to catch my breath and hoping that people aren't hearing it on the stream. But anyway, we get to the 11th floor and there's dozens of these developers, right? And they start, you know, they're, they're, they're grinning, they're smirking, they're you know snickering at us and they're not taking us seriously. And you can tell that they're, you know, they're a little, they're annoyed that we interrupted their cocktail, um, and, you know, you know, I, I think after a few minutes then they realized we're not going anywhere, um, they kind of stopped and were starting to pay attention. So some of them had fled the room. So the, the city comptroller actually ran away from us and ran out the, I ran outside as soon as we got in there. <laughs> and I obviously I wasn't outside, but I was told that, you know, they fled the building, hoping that they were going to, you know, escape all the, all the all the chaos. But they were met. Like I said, there were hundreds of people outside who didn't come inside. So. They, they fled the 11th floor only to come outside to conf- be confronted by hundreds of other um, activists and, and, and community members who then confronted them about their position on what's happening with the UC townhomes. Um, but I, I stayed up the entire time and there were some council people like Kendra Brooks who has done, you know, she's um, she has advocated for the UC townhomes, but there's, you know, a lot of questions about, is that enough? Um, but she was up there um and whoever was hosting the event kind of like started ushering people, ushering the actual guests of the cocktail party out of the room and onto the balcony. There's a large balcony on the 11th floor. They started ushering some of them out there. Kendra Brooks and I think some other council people ran outside too. They like they, they did not want to engage with us at all. Um, there was a handful of people who started engaging with us um, and trying to hold a dialogue and there was a lot of just dialogue about, you know, well, we can't do anything about it, but we can try to set up a meeting if you'd like to talk offline or off camera about this. And it's like, no, we're here right now. We can have this conversation right now. And they essentially kept saying, and, and, you know, it wasn't like Brett Altman was there, but these are people who have done, these are city developers, urban developers who have played a large role in gentrifying major pockets of the city. So they kept saying like, oh, we don't have the power, but we could try to put you in contact with the people who, you know, are making the decision about the DC townhomes. And it's like, motherfucker, you're the you guys power. have, you're the power, you have the money, you're the ones coming in and buying up these, the, these plots of land and building these, these shoddy, these shoddy like homes. And I don't know how much you know about the homes, but like a lot of these, these like new constructions, they don't last. Like they're not, they're putting them up all over the city and they look nice if you, some, I mean, I don't think they look nice at all, but if, you know, people think they look very modern and futuristic, all that, all that shit, but, you know, the some people who have lived, who have purchased these homes for a couple of years, you know, they're coming out saying, you know, my plumbing no longer works, this leaks, this is falling apart, like people are realizing that, you know, they're coming in and building these homes that aesthetically are supposed to look modern and, and whatnot, but they, they're not are not built like they built homes back like a hundred years ago. Like I don't think these homes are built to last more than a couple of years. So what's really happening in the city is it's not unique to Philadelphia by any means, but it's, it's certainly tragic. And now, you know, we're having discussions about, or we're seeing discussions about, you know, the 76ers want to build a fucking arena in, in center city essentially right by Chinatown. And they had tried building, I think the Philly stadium, right. Or the Eagle stadium. They tried building it in Chinatown. Like, a decade or two decades, whatever it was. And there was a huge pushback being like, if you build a fucking stadium near Chinatown, that's going to displace so many residents. That's going to disrupt the entire like culture and community around Chinatown. Like you, you can't do that. So we're once again, having to, I say we, but I mean, just mean community residents of Philadelphia have to deal with this again. Like, do we really need a, a stadium in center city. That's going to cause all this major traffic. It's going to cause all of this shit, you know, and what's going to happen with the residents. So it's, it's a larger conversation about urban development and what it means to quote unquote revitalize a city when the cost of that revitalization is like kicking people out who've been there for decades. Right. And so that's sort of the situation with the UC townhomes and, um, Yeah. So like I said, I don't really know um, what the current status is. I think the residents are trying to, um, they're trying to buy it. You know, they're trying to take ownership of that low income housing. Um, So I don't know the status of that, Um, but they do have some demands, um, immediate demands, like, you know, they're, they're demanding for an extension on um, the eviction. Obviously they have some demands for immediate repairs they are demanding some compensation per family um so the total you know they're the altman family is looking for about a hundred million dollars for this sale but um they actually received the land for a dollar believe it or not yeah and through through eminent domain um
1: i was gonna read something about that actually
2: yeah so that's something i'm still learning about to be honest but yeah so they they're essentially Selling this land that they got for one dollar, and they've they've received all these tax credits and benefits by providing it by having this contract with HUD, right, to, to be able to provide um, low income housing. But now they're trying to sell it for, for hundred million dollars. So one of the re- one of the demands from the residents um, is they're de- they're demanding five hundred thousand dollars of financial compensation per family, which amounts to thirty five percent of the total sale price. Um, and this is supposed to um, account for, you know, the history of that that specific piece of land being stolen from indigenous people during colonialism. and Let me show well- you.
1: Let me let me break into this real quick. Yeah. So Black Bottom stood between 40th and 32nd streets in West Philadelphia. Depending on the sources, they'll decide on the northern and southern boundaries, but the neighborhood generally understood to have been north and separate from the campus of the University of Penn, south of Mantua and Powhatan villages. And before the area was called the Black Bottom, it was a part of overlapped other smaller towns once the consolidation of Philadelphia which is basically at a certain point in time in the 1850s Philadelphia They brought that area in, and after the Civil War, it was developed into West Philadelphia's um, affluent streetcar suburbs. And basically, the University of Penn moved there because of that. After World War I, wealthier residents were using the streetcars to go further west out of the city, and that neighborhood then kind of became in decline. So then this is the beginning of the industrialization that helped win World War One and would help World War Two. So, migrants from the southern states, from uh, from the uh, African Americans, moved into that neighborhood because there was housing discrimination basically everywhere else in the city. And then in the 1920s, and then later in 1950s, Penn, Drexel, and University of Sciences and Presbyterian Hospital basically wanted to recreate and build the area to be now known what it's called University City. Now, here's where a quote from... Wikipedia. The first major clash between Black Bottom residents and white institutions came in 1963 over plans to build a Science Magnet High School on 7.6 acres of land in Unit 3 between 36 and 38, along Market Street. Black residents believed that the very few of their children would gain entrance to Magnet School, which is being designed for children of faculty, staff, graduate students of Penn and Drexel. Construction of Magnet School to be called University City High School would displace families and individuals living in that area. And then they, magically, portions of the area were declared blighted by the city and the remaining properties were purchased by eminent domain, which is what you're talking about. Basically, they were purchased for about a dollar. And what's fucked up about this is, this is the late 1960s. Residents estimate between 4,000 and 15,000 local residents were displaced to build what we now know as the Market Street University cities.
2: 14,000
1: is what it said? Yeah, different sources will claim between 4,000 and 15,000 people were displaced in the 1960s. That was before they gave them the UC townhomes as kind of like the caveat for the displacement. So now they're just basically, this is the coup de grace to finally push out the remaining people who barely survived. And then another article and this is important to Philadelphia and this is important to people in other areas because you're going to see this all over the place They're, As you said, they're all getting put, they're all getting, what was the term you used? Uh, tickets or they're all getting oh, the
2: vouchers. The vouchers. Yeah, they're
1: getting vouchers. However, the current Philadelphia system has a 40,000 person weight limit. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a, there's a waiting list, 40,000 households long. Neither natural or inevitable, the forced displacements are the result of concrete choices made by Philadelphia and Penn administrators' past and present. And that's, uh, they talk about it, this is the West Philadelphia Corp., a coalition between cl- uh, claiming Penn as a majority shareholder for a mission to redevelop West Philly as a university city. And that's where they started, uh, they labeled it as a blight to invoke the eminent domain. They displaced um, the residents. 78% were black. And then they talk about the resistance here. And then they bring up the fact that the Altman uh, Group basically bought the property at 39 that market for $1 and was committed to building affordable housing there. And it was small in comparison to what they thought. And then now with the potential one dollar is now worth one hundred million dollars the Altman grew to selling.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and this situation with, you know, I mean it's back during, you know, during the the uprisings about two years ago now. That summer there was a whole encampment on the parkway in Philadelphia that I was covering quite extensively on the channel, um, where a lot of um, houseless Philadelphians were basically setting up tents and living on what are normally like little league baseball field, uh, baseball field on right by the art museum. And so the situation then was, you know, the Philadelphia housing authority, again, they're supposed to provide some percent, some percentage of their homes that they own as low income housing. And they weren't, they weren't doing it. And like you said, the wait list even back then was tens of thousands deep. And so what the Philadelphia housing authority has done, you know, people can dive into this, but like, they've also have been, been in, You know, engaging in that practice of, you know, intentionally blighting areas of the city to drop down property values so they can buy it more. And so it's, it's a very deliberate thing um, that goes into gentrifying and displacing people and communities, especially communities of color, in order to bring in new developers and, and, and all that shit. So it's not new. It's, it's part of, um, it's part of a process. It's a very it's a it's a it's a deliberate process that they have here.
1: I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I was told for years from the fact that we lived in the river wards that they eventually would be building on the river and they've done that. In Philadelphia they've created an entire neighborhood that never existed before called North Bank within three or four weeks. Before, you know, like just boom, let's just prop let's just prop up these houses, they're all worth six hundred thousand. They, they're, they're, if anyone who's listening is unfamiliar, and but they see these videos of Philadelphia of Kensington or the Instagram Kensington Beach, the city has always waged a war against its residents who are below the poverty line by allowing abject third world conditions to exist, then blame the community and then do exactly what they just we talked about in the 1960s, where they considered an area blight. And then sold the area for as cheap as possible in the crack in the post deindustrialization part of Philadelphia. A lot of the inner city lost population because they lost the factory jobs as they were shipped overseas, and these north and central and even western areas lost jobs for the entire communities. The crack epidemic came later on. There was constant pockets of open air drug sales, open air prostitution. And the city allows it to happen. They do not give any kind of financial support to revitalize the neighborhoods at the the rate they need to. And then they wait for the perfect time to sell off the land for pennies on the dollar and bring in gentrification when they could bring in rich uh, donors who want to support the local schools, Temple, Drexel, uh, University of Pennsylvania, and others, as well as just opening displacement I don't know, I, you're a little bit younger than me, so you, you were coming to uh, downtown when the convention center was already in the process of being built, but before the before they really opened up the convention center and tried to make City Hall look nice, um, there was tons of crazy strip joints and all this stuff all around the Trocadero. That's why the Trocadero was a burlesque theater forever. And... They cleaned all that up. They made the Reading terminal market, like, somewhat nicer. But, um, especially with uh, our future guest, Nancy Burrell, if you read her book, she'll talk about, like, old movies from the late 70s even into early 80s, like, trading places. Like, it was not a nice area. And, um... They slowly built from the center city out, and now they're attacking neighborhoods, obviously, in every part to get gentrification in here, get New York people who are willing to pay $500,000 where regular Philadelphians could barely afford a $200,000 house. So I love what you're doing by continuing to support people who don't have a voice and could also bring... Young folks who love nothing more than fighting the powers together. It's one of the great things about your channel. It's one of the great things about what you've been able to do by keeping that skinny-ass arm up in the air for fucking such a many long time and many years. The people's it, arm. The people's arm is bringing people closer to things that are not only in their own backyard if they're from this area, but to their own specific thoughts on the world and how this gentrification and displacement is everywhere, as you can see. The only correction I have, and this is something that I've had to, and this is not
2: me being pedantic here. This is something that I've had to like, really think about is, you know, there's always this discussion, like voice of the voiceless or speaking for the voiceless. I'm not, and I'm not saying that you were saying that I'm doing that, but like, I think these people actually do have voices. I think marginalized people do have voices. It's that people who should be listening, aren't listening. So I've, I've learned to be like, you know what? i have I'm not speaking for these people. When I go to like an Indigenous people's rally, I'm not speaking for them. I'm amplifying the voices that they do have, the agency that they do have. Um, but yeah, it's like for me, that's always been the forefront of the channel. You know, it's like we there's something about hardcore and punk. Like we we come in, we create these. We transform the basement of a fucking church into a venue, right? There's something literally transformative about what hardcore punk is. Like you come to the show and like your friend is running sound. He's never learned, to. he's never, the only reason he knows how to run the soundboard, this fucking massive soundboard is because he went to a show when he was younger and learned how to do it. Like there's something about coming into these spaces that changes the way that you interact with the world. And so I'm trying to take those things and that spirit that energy and like apply it to the outside world. And and I think people when they complain about why mix the two, it's like, motherfuckers, these are people in my community. Like (laughs) you know, you you know what I mean? Like Mumia Abu Jamal, political prisoner that I advocate for, I'm friends with his grandson, like his grandson. So it's 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 not this intangible thing. Like these are people who are part of the community, you know? And and, and and I think we probably touched on this before, but like, you know, for example, you know, when when at, at the height of the uprisings that were happening in Colombia, you know, people are like, why are you posting why are you posting, you know, political updates about what's happening in Colombia, all the all the unrest and and all of the the turmoil. And it's like, well, we have fucking raw brigade in our own community here who are from Colombia, who have family there. So it's like these things that people think don't like intersect with hardcore actually do. It's like, I'm sure we, I'm sure there's people who come to Philly shows who have cousins or know people or might even be from the UC town. I'm like, we don't, you don't, you never know what someone's connection is. So for me, it's all part of the same. It's, you know, if I'm, if I'm ha- helping to advocate for a community, it's because they are literally part of the community. <laughs> so it's, it's to ask for that stuff to be separated, I think is completely disingenuous and, and this is the point of what it means to be a part of a community. So, I mean, that's, that's how I think about it at least.
1: Now, I appreciate the correction. And I should have, I should have uh, vocalized it that way that you're just amplifying voices. You're not speaking for them. And I think, especially just holding a camera in the air, you're basically allowing their voices and, You do the, every year I fuck up the term for it, but it's the, in lieu of celebrating Thanksgiving.
2: Oh, the National Day of Mourning.
1: The National Day of Mourning, And and you don't do any dialogue. You just keep your camera rolling and you let the other people speak for what the event is. And I think about, the thing about hardcore, and if you touch on Raw Brigade, I don't know if chills went up your back, but seeing Carlos speak in his native language, and there were so many kids in the crowd who understood what he was saying, that's like a moment where you can see, for the East Coast, things are continually shifting. Like, I've played California many times. I've played Texas. I've played Mexico. I've played in Spain, where you hear that almost the entire time during the sets before we get on, and I hope the kids understand what the fuck we're saying. But it was amazing to see him shout out and give love to all these people and there was tons of people that came from so many parts of South America that I think it's important I think also it's good to give people who may only see some perspectives a world view you know like it's important and and hate five six which has always been a labor of love I did an episode and I, and I uh, two episodes ago and I brought you up as a labor of love and you know although a success. It's still a labor of love. It's something that, you know, there's no Maserati parked in your fucking, in your in your garage here. You know, you've never sat on your um, laurels and passed off and said, you know what, I don't have time. And actually, I think you made a meme about it. Didn't you do it like today or two days ago or something like that? Where someone was like, can they send, hopefully they can send Sonny like, like you've got a bullpen, like a taxi cab stand. Yeah, videographers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, we're gonna send Mac out to this one, and you go to this one. You know.
2: Yeah, and I, I think to your to your point, it's like, you know, just 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 to take a step back. You know, I, I go to I go to the shows. I point my camera. I let it roll. I film the opening band playing their first show. I play the, the supporting acts who are part. You know, you know, midway through their career, whatever you want to call it. And then I filmed the headliner playing their last show. It's like every band gets the hate six treatment. And the thing about it is like, when I go to these rallies, it's like, dude, I'm going to go, I'm going to hit stream. And you're going to have some person at their first rally speaking in front of thousands of people for the first time. You're going to have like incredible, really eloquent veteran activists like Mike Africa Jr. getting behind the mic and, and giving delivering a really powerful speech. And so I really... The more that I do everything with the a5 six the the more I realize like there's a there's a term in mathematics called isomorphism, right? It's like essentially the structures the same. you kind of like decorate things a little differently, but the underlying structure is the same. So for me, it's like these things are isomorphic, right? Like they're filming bands at a show performing in front of a crowd and they're they're expressing themselves through their music. their music represents the culmination of the things that they're feeling, whatever it is it's no different than going to a rally and filming people who are expressing themselves at the combination of, of the things that are, that are, are, that are affecting them. It's the same thing. And I'm just documenting it using the same tools and putting it out on the same distribution pipeline. So for me, the, 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 the longer that I do it, the more like, I feel like I'm realizing the generality of what I'm doing and like what it all means, if that makes sense.
1: No, I think the, the way that you are perceived i like that people use the term perceived now but the way that you are perceived is like you're in you're in every place at once as the channel but they don't realize that it's still a singular one man process yeah and in this in this journey of yours and, I, and i'll refer back to episode 2 we talked about the importance of Rage Against the Machine. And we're not going to overlap that too much in this episode just because they should go back and listen to it. But one of the greatest accomplishments I think all of us in punk rock have is that not only the meeting of the hero, but when you have, like, for me as a promoter, I get to book the bands that are my heroes But for you, you were really in an interesting spot because your heroes are one of the most popular bands on the history of American alternative music uh, whose roots were definitely involved in the hardcore scene who are one of the biggest bands on the entire fucking planet. So it was never going to be, oh yeah, well eventually I'm going to have to work with this band. You, in the process that only a dedicated fan and not only a fan of the band, but a fan of the process, a fan of the things that the band brought to the forefront of American politics and the subculture around it. Like you were a dedicated pupil and student and you went through the archives deeper and, and like analyze, you probably have a PhD in live footage ...from Rage Against a Machine. And all of that would eventually lead back... ...to a specific moment... ...where... ...you know, you and I always kid around from the Mad Max movie... ...at the Witness Me moment... ...but you had the moment where you were actually invited... ...to be a part of a crew... ...that would get to shoot these Rage Against Machine Machine shows. And... ...to me it was one of the greatest moments just to know that you would be a part of the production to capture them live. And then to stand with Glennie Freeman, it's just another, like, wow. How does this... Like, you know, like, you're standing with giants. You know, like, you're in the fucking... You're in the pit with these guys shooting the band that you never thought you would ever... You know, if someone gave you a free ticket at that level, you would have been mind-blown. Let let your now, your son of your 856... And your job is to shoot the band and give them a different perspective. That's the accumulation of thousands of hours of work and dedication through your entire life. Not including the thousands of hours that it took to get the channel and Hate Five Six to be such an important process in social media when it covers these kind of events to do this. And I just have to congratulate and tell you that's an accolade that someone didn't bestow you on it because they were trying to throw you a bone. You worked blood, sweat and tears for so many fucking years to get to it.
2: I, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I've honestly been playing 40 chess my entire life to get to this moment, to build something that they just could not be denied. It could not be ignored to the point where it's, you know, where, where to the point where the response was, you have to work with me. There's no other choice, right? And so I feel like I'd been sharpening my blade for 20 years just, just to have this opportunity. And, um, you know, I I essentially wrote their management an email on my birthday back in April. And I said, it's a very long email, 1,200 words. And It was a bulleted thing, essentially outlining the reasons why I had to shoot it and they couldn't say no very politely saying that essentially. And, you know, I kind of went through it about what hate by six is what I've done and why I've done it and where I see it going and why I see this, this partnership making sense and, and all of it, I really dove into it. And so I heard back from the management about a week before the, before the first show. And they said, Hey, the band loves you. They know about your work. They've been familiar for many years. they, are inviting you to come film as many shows as you want, and so I <laughs> I wiped my entire summer schedule, and I went to 14 of the 18 shows, um, and it was honestly, I know this is such a common thing to say, but it was the most life changing experience of my life. I mean, it's just just the the analogy that I've been telling people the last couple couple weeks is I've been on a carousel ride my entire life, like reaching for that brass ring. You know, you try to get the ring and you don't get it. So you wait for the next opportunity. You got to wait for the next revolution. Come back around, you get a little bit closer and you try again. Then you're far off. And it's, it's a lot of that. It's not always, like you said earlier, it's not always linear progress. It's a lot of like maybe two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. You know, it's not always going to be inching closer and closer. So I feel like my whole fucking life has been on this carousel ride. Like I'm enjoying the ride. Like I'm having fun with it. But there's always this thing out of reach. And I'm trying to prove to myself that I'm good enough to get it. I'm good enough to be a part of that, to hold on to that and add it to something, add it to like my collection. You know what I mean? Like I've filmed 5,000 fucking performances at this point, but there's the one elusive band, right? That I have not been able to film because they never fucking play. So the question has always been moving in my head like, I, one, I hope Rage reunites. And then two, If they reunite, I hope I'll get a chance to film them. Maybe just one song for one show. A lot of ifs and a lot of contingencies were baked into that. Right. And so I feel like, you know, and I think I tweeted this, but when you want something for so long, even if it's something that like a dream, right. Something that's so positive and something that's so fulfilling, like wanting something for so long, eventually just feels like a fucking burden that weighs on you. And it kind of brings you down in a way, right? Like, I've, I've done 8 by 6 for, Jesus Christ, so many years now. And the back of my mind was like, you know, I've, got, I've, I've checked off all of these bucket list bands. I filmed Trial, Broken, 108, Texas is the Reason. All these bands I've always wanted to film, I've got, I've got them all. But it's like, I never got rage. Never got rage. And I'm like, am I good enough? Am I not good enough? What do I need to do to get good enough to do something like that? I've spent so many hours watching literally every known recording of that band in existence dozens of times over to the point where I know when Tom Morello does a certain little idiosyncrasy.
1: Mm-hmm. dissertation, like the,
2: the defense, right? When you're going for a PhD, you got to like study, you got like do all this coursework got to do your research and then you got to present your work right in front of uh you know P- like actual do- like people who hold doctorates and you have to defend your fucking thesis and then if you pass that then they you know they grant you your phd right so i feel like i've been getting this fucking phd in rage studies right like studying when and how to film them and how to capture the essence watching every dvd watching every like recording that someone filmed in the fucking balcony right and so for me, you know, I've a lot of my shooting style stems from all the hours I've watched. Right. So even if I never got rage, like so much of how I shoot, not just how I like film the pol- the protest and things like that, but like even just how I stylistically shoot comes from hours spent watching how other people film that band and how they captured it and how they made me a fucking 10 year old kid in 1996 feel like I was at rock AM ring in, 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 in Europe, or was that Lollapalooza 93, right? Like seeing recordings and making it feel like I was there. There's something powerful that it like literally transforms you, transports you from being in a suburban bedroom in New Jersey in 1996 or 2001, whatever it was taking time, traveling you back like a decade earlier to some other part of the world and seeing a band play in front of like tens of thousands of people there's something completely amazing there. And really that's what made me want to get into Hey Five Six. And we talked about this before, so I'm not going to belabor it, but like if a shitty VHS recording, I say shitty, but it's like not, I say shitty in terms of like the fidelity of it, not the person's filming style, but like if a low quality VHS recording of a band can make someone feel like they belong somewhere or they're a part of something or that they were actually there physically, my whole mission has been like, well, what it, if that's what a VHS recording can do? Like imagine what like a, a five camera angle thing with, with like a pro mix soundboard. It's all published for free. It's freely accessible on the internet. Like to some random kid browsing YouTube and stumbling upon it. Like shit. Like The, 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 the potential for that to transform someone's life and open their eyes to like culture and art and music outside of what they know. Fuck man. That's like, I don't know. I I think that there's, there's, there's incredible power there. So when I, when I wrote to rage, I just said, look, like you guys have to let me do this. You know, I'm not asking for anything. I'm already going to be at these shows. I already have a ticket. All I'm asking you is to give me the same opportunity. I literally said, I want the same opportunity that you're going to give Glenn Friedman and Danny Clinch to take photos of you. And so last night of the tour, I see Danny, I see Danny clinch and Glenn Friedman in the photo pit. And I'm like, fuck, I, I, I made it. There were so many moments during the story where I just had to take a step back and be like, I fucking made it. I did it. I literally did it. What I was set out to do as a fucking 10 year old kid. Like I, I think I told it to you, but like, I, I feel like I beat the final boss in a video game. I've been playing my whole life. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, you know, and you know, I, it was amazing to just be able to shoot next to Danny and, and Glenn, but they weren't even there the whole tour. They were there just for the last night at Madison square, you know? And, you know, at every show, there were local photographers and the, the, the camera policy for the zoom who don't know at like these major big shows is normally photographers can take photos of the first three or four songs. And then they clear out the photo pit. I was the only person throughout the entire tour that rage let, stay in the photo pit so basically after you know the first couple songs during like bulls on parade bomb track people of the sun you know it's chaos in the photo pit. there's all these photographers getting photos and whatnot but after that first block of songs they kicked everyone out and i was the only person there so it was literally the band on stage me then the security guards behind me and then twenty thousand people behind them at every fucking show so there were so many moments where i just had to take a step back and just soak it all in like i would turn around and just try to wrap my head around how fucking massive these arenas are because you have to you have to understand i've i've never filmed arenas that big before and it's you know it's uh it's completely different from filming a band playing at the church but it's also not like the the way that i film rage is the way that i film a punk band and a hardcore band because that's how i feel i feel like that's how you capture a band like that right and so i i learned you know, through this tour, you know, I met some amazing people, um, on the production crew. It's a real pretty big production team, but you know, again, this is my first foray into working like a big, big production, right? Like I was not, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Right. And so everyone I met was super nice. They, a lot of them were familiar with hate five, 6, which I thought was incredible. Um, just to, you know, come in and feel like, Oh, these people, you know, these people work with, Motley Crue and Madonna and they film, you know, all these massive, you know, these shows for Netflix. These are, these are professional videographers and filmmakers and whatnot and production crew, right. Who work on big sets and big productions and for them to acknowledge what I was doing and to be familiar with it. I was like, damn, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. But I, I, I also had to win some people over, you know, there were people there who were not familiar with what I do um and how i do it and you know pretty early on in the tour i've had i had some people come up to me being like hey i had no idea who you were i thought you were just gonna be some random guy that you know the band was gonna let film and then i went on youtube i typed in hate by six and the quote from someone uh was essentially you know i had no idea who you were and then i went on your youtube channel it just seems like all you do is film bands and post them all day and i had to be like yep that's literally all i do i mean i do more than that obviously but my entire life has been has been built around filming bands and the essence of bands and, and capturing it the right way. Cause like, again, you know, I'm not just coming up and setting up a tripod and walking away. It's like, I'm filming, it. I'm trying to capture certain moments, certain dynamics, and I'm trying to convey that through the video. And uh, you know, the band was sharing a lot of my stuff on social media pretty much from the jump. Um, and that was pretty humbling to see that they were posting my stuff and tagging me. Right. Like, and 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 showing that respect and just seeing the response from people um you know a lot of people at the shows recognize me they would come up to me and say you know it was you know they were so excited to see that i had been able to achieve this thing and i was there to, to, and, to and to do it and uh you know one of the things that i said to rage's manager in the email was look like as a 10 year old kid in 96 i did not have a ton of not a ton of people who look like me you know brown people people of color in pop culture. Yes, there were, you know, a bunch, but like in heavy music on MTV, not so much, right? And so I said, you know, that was important for me to f- be able to find my agency and my voice and feel like I belong in a community like this. Um, And I said, I said, listen, you know, a lot of young people follow Hate by Six, especially a lot of like young kids of color. And I said, if you give me an opportunity like this, it's going to make them feel like that they can fucking do this too, that they can set out to do whatever they want and be a part of a community or be a part of a big fucking thing that they would never think in their wildest imaginations could be possible. And, you know, like the Dandy Clinch and and, and Glenn Friedman encounter, I've had so many kids message me since coming home from the tour being like, listen, man, like seeing you, you know, a, a lot of kids of color message me saying like seeing a, a, a fellow brown person achieve this makes me feel like I can do whatever I want. So it's, it's been really emotional. I'm not going to lie. Like a lot of nights, just, you know, a lot of nights early on is where we're, you know, I got choked up. I, 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 I'd shed some tears. I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit it. Just allowing that, you know, emotion to really sink in and, and and embrace it because like I said, my entire life has been building to this and, you know, I had to, <laughs> I had to kind of let it all out. Um, But yeah, towards the end of the tour, I got invited to go hang out with Zach and and meet him um, backstage. And it was cool. It was very like I kept my I was definitely nervous at first, but, you know, I really kept my cool. And, you know, within a few minutes of talking to him, it was very obviously like a very mutual respect kind of thing. He was referencing things that I do with Hate by Six that I had no idea he knew about, like referencing tweets that I made, referencing videos. Like He clearly is aware and familiar with Hate by Six, you know, and you know, he had actually visited the Discord house the day before in D.C. And, you know, he you know, he's a big fan of, you know, everything that Ian, Ian MacKay has done. Right. So Ian was showing him like the Discord archives. And Zach was telling me that he was, you know, he was just mind blown just seeing all this stuff. And it was there was a moment there was a pause. And I said, that's funny, Zach. Like I had the same reaction when I find like a rare inside out recording or rare rage recording. And he just started laughing. Right. And and it was it was a cool moment because he was like, listen, man, like was like, I Love the way that you run Hate by Six. I love the way that you you archive it. You archive these things. You you. It's not like you just go in and film it and then you're done. Or if like I get a tape from someone. Like I research the hell out of that tape. You know, I figure out when it was filmed, where it was filmed, who filmed it, like all that shit. You know. So he has been really familiar with my process, and he, you know, he's an archivist at heart. Like he uh, he has an incredible wealth of knowledge about all kinds of music, and so. If to realize that he, you know, was recognizing the way that I run the channel—not that I just do it, but that, like, the the nuance behind how I do it meant a lot. Um, just to be able to have that that interaction, and I ended up I ended up being able to hang out with them a couple more times during the tour, and it was great um, to just to finally have that that moment of witness me please witness me yeah um it was it was cool i mean i had a brief interaction with tom you know i've, I've texted with tom a couple of times since coming home brad was awesome too um i ended up doing drum cams for brad during the tour um so the, other, the other thing i wanted to point out was you know early on in the tour kind of like what i was allowed to do was just have one camera angle and i was only in the photo pit and that was it so my strategy was you know i film the first few shows, you know, I was, I was also only allowed to take uh video recordings of the first couple of songs. And then I had to switch over to, to photos, which I had never taken photos of a band before. So if you look at some of the, you know, some of the, some of the rage posts early on the tour were my photos that they were posting. And it's like, I was just trying my best. And I think some of them came out pretty good, but I was literally just on the fly learning how to take photos while in the pit, while in the photo pit of Rage Against the Machine. But my strategy was, um, You know, I shot the first couple of shows, three or four songs, one camera angle. And then I would send clips to the band, send clips to the management. And I would say, hey, if you like what I did with one camera, if you let me do two, I can do even better. So, you know, they eventually let me do two cameras. So I set up a wide shot and I said, hey, you like the wide shot? If you let me set up a third camera, you know, I'll stay in the photo, but let me set up a camera on stage. I can get like a shot of Brad on the kit. So halfway through the tour, I was running three cameras, right? Like on my handheld shot in the photo pit, a wide shot at the back of the room, and then a drum cam off to the side of the stage, locked off. And I sent that to Brad. Brad was like, dude, this is amazing. Do you think we could set up a second camera closer up? And I said, "Why? actually, yes, I have more cameras in my bag. I came prepared, right? So by the end of the tour, by the last couple of shows in Madison Square Garden and, and things like that, I was running five cameras for Rage. I had my handheld. I had the wide shot. I had two drum cams, a wide a wide drum cam and a tight drum cam. And then I had another camera locked off to capture a Tim on bass. And so Brad, Brad was a big fan of the drum cams um, because he was able to study them. Because, you know, drummers love to watch themselves. It's good practice and good, you know, good way to like analyze technique, like kind of like a football player watching old, old games to figure out where they mess up. So, you know, Brad and I got into a routine where, you know, the show would end, um, I'd go back to the hotel. I would go back to my hotel. I was I wasn't with the band, to be clear. I was like traveling on my own, paying out of pocket. Um, I would get back get back to the hotel. I would stay up till 4 a.m. This again, this is what I do for like this is hardcore, right? This is hardcore. Ends. I go back to my my place. I I stay up till 4 a.m. Dumping the memory cards, sorting the files, charging batteries. I sleep for two hours, and then the, the the cycle repeats for the next day of the fest. So I went into like this is hardcore mode during these rage shows right so you know i'd show it in. i'd go back to the hotel i'd dump cards i'd edit some clips i'd send it just so that in the morning the social media team would have stuff to post and then i would send brad his drum cam he was like dude this is awesome i can like study this and like it was great like being able to like provide him you know not just provide the band like good social media content but actually provide them resources to help them play better and perform better so for me that was like a, that felt really rewarding to be able to like you know, yes, work with the band, but really work with them and be a part of like them playing shows again after 11 fucking years. Right. Um, And the last thing that I'll say, you know, was, you know, I, I came in there, you know, hoping to you know be respected. Right. I You know, the management respected me, the band respected me. But I was like, fuck, I hope the people who are working production respect me. And like I said, like a lot of them knew about my work and they, they were they were all about it. But I really feel like I still had to take the respect from 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 just being in that environment because again, like you know, I don't work in Hollywood. I'm not working major productions outside of this raid show, right? Like my typical day is filming a band playing in front of 30 people in the basement or 50 people at Kung Fu Necktie or 200 people at the First Unitarian Church, right? Like that's that's home for me. That's where I sharpened my blade, like I said. So I came in there and I was like, you know what? I don't have the Hollywood experience, but I'm just going to roll with it. Like I, like I shoot a fucking hardcore show. So I think some people on the tour were like, holy shit, you're running five camera angles by yourself. And like, how do you do it? Like, I really feel like, you know, the people on the tour who did not know about me or were not familiar with hardcore punk, they got a crash course in what it is to be a part of the hardcore punk community. Cause dude, like we were talking about earlier, like, being involved in hardcore punk it teaches you to be resourceful it teaches you to be transformative it teaches you to create to cr- literally create something out of nothing because no one's stopping you no one's telling you that you can't start a zine no one's telling you that you can't learn how to book a band or learn how to run sound or learn how to like pick up a camera and do it you just fucking do it and no one's going to fucking stop you so i think that the some of the people on the production Like they really just by me being there, they got a fucking crash course in what it means to be like, fundamentally be a part of this, this culture that we love. Cause it just, it teaches you to be so obsessed about this music and this shit that you, you, you want to keep going to night after night. Right. (laughs) It just, it, 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 uh, it it rewires your brain. And I think that when they saw the way that I work and the way that I operate, it was like, okay, this isn't just some dinky kid with a dinky fucking VHS camera. This is like a literally a one, I'm not, you know, I'm a one man fucking weapon house. It's, It's kind of like what I wanted to show is like, listen, I know, you know, I'm not here to steal your thunder. I'm here to, what I'm here to do is create a love letter to a band that I care about. And I'm trying to work alongside you and, That means you're going to have to deal with it. Like, you're going to have to accept that I'm here because I, you know, one, the band and management want me here, but two, I earned this. I've worked my entire life for this. I deserve to be here and you can't fucking stop it.
1: So, this is the question that ends all questions. When the endorphins ended and the mental thing kind of collapsed and you realized, like, oh, fuck, I did it. How many hours were separated before you just launched back into regular hate five six mode? Uh I can look at my calendar. I, I want to say like within the
2: next day or two, I was back to filming archives. I actually left, you know, it's funny. Um, so when Rage played Madison's Square Garden, they had five sold out nights at MSG, which is kind of kind of incredible. I think I think if you play Madison Square Garden, you're required to play two nights. At least there's some sort of requirement. At least that's what I've heard. And normally it's two, maybe three. But they sold out five nights in MSG, so it was like, I think like a Monday, Tuesday, and then a Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. So there's a Wednesday off and Saturday off. So I spent that Saturday. I came back to Philly and I filmed that simulacra Simulaca record release show at at Philimoca. So I was literally like leaving the Rage tour to go do this. And even earlier on in the Rage tour, I left, I left the Canadian shows. I I I missed. The Cleveland, I think there was a Cleveland date of Rage that I missed to go fly to Baltimore to film the end at record release show. So I was literally, dude, I literally skipped some Rage shows to go film hardcore bands, and I'm I've no regrets about it. Like I listen, I'm never not going to film a hardcore band. Like that's this is home for me. This is what I want to keep doing. I don't want to level up from this. I mean, listen, if Rage calls me again and says, hey, you want to do it again, I'll, I'll go do it. But it's not like I'm using hardcore as a stepping stone to like abandon it. You know what I mean? So yeah, I I left. Um, I did skip some shows to do the end it show. And then I came, I, I flew back out. I I I actually skipped Rage's second show. I went, I, 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 I skipped Saturday, this is hardcore. I missed Hate Breed. I missed it, unfortunately, to go film Rage's first show back. Um, but I flew back the next day to film Sunday, this is hardcore. Um, I was gonna fly out. That Monday to go see Rage's third show, their second show in Chicago, um, but I opted not to because I wanted to film Gridiron playing in an empty pool in Greg Falchetta's backyard. <laughs> so even though I still, you know, I was like, "Damn, I, I, I can say fuck it and just do the entire Rage tour," and you know, some people will be upset with me, but like, I have every right to do it. But I still put Rage on the back burner and 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 still filmed hardcore shows throughout the whole fucking tour. So. Ah, uh, people want to get mad at me. It's like, listen, I fucking,
1: I did both. <laughs> I, I, I literally did both. Do you think if you had a course that you had to teach that wasn't how do you shoot Rage Against the Machine, but how do you take inexperience and turn it into not only experience? But to culminate a body of work great enough to achieve something like this, that you could do it? Or do you think that because, like we were talking about, with these different little circular patterns of how you operated and how it grew and how it organically just kept spreading, that it would be impossible for you to teach anyone how to get from a kid with a VHS to standing in the pit Multiple days in a row at Madison Square Garden shooting your favorite band.
2: It's weird. Like, I feel like I could write a book about this whole journey because, like I said, it's been literally decades of playing 4D chess. Right? Like, oh, if I do, you know, again, it's not like I deliberately did things to get on Rage's radar, but it's like, all right, you know, like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna like keep chipping away at this channel or keep chipping away at this project and create it and mold it in this image that i have right in my mind and so you know one of the byproducts of that was like it slowly culminated to the point where like it was a it was inevitable that the band would it would come across their uh, their radar like tom loves anti-flag i happened to dig up old anti-flag recordings that happened in boston and like i shared it a couple years ago i i i, I, I digitized, it, I cleaned it up, I posted it and Tom retweeted it. So it's like, it got to a point where, you know, the stuff I was doing just was on und- like, you couldn't ignore it anymore. Um, even if you tried. So, you know, I could write, a, I really feel like at some point, <laughs> I, I will, I will turn this into like a story about how it all came to be. But I don't know, I there's probably a way to distill it into like actual takeaways. But honestly, like the, the takeaway is You just fucking do what you want and you create whatever it is in the image that you want. And you don't let anyone stop you. If someone stops you, you just say, fuck you. I'm going to keep going. And there's a quote, I think it was like Thomas Edison who said, I've never failed. I just found 10,000 ways that don't work. It was something to that effect. And so it's like, listen, create whatever you want, do whatever you want and fucking fail at it. It's okay to fucking fail at it. And I've said this a lot in other interviews, but like when you fail, like just, just, just as in that quote, you you didn't really fail. You just learned what didn't work in that scenario. And then when you try again, you can sort of like fine tune your parameters and, and give it another shot. And so it's, it's an iterative process. And I think that is like, the main takeaway of anyone trying to like attain a goal that seems so far to reach is, It's not, okay, I'm starting at a, and I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to B immediately. It's like, no, you have to like, you got to chip away at it. You have to iterate on it. You have to like, you got to chip away at it. You got to like, let it bake in the oven. You got to take it out of the oven. You got to like, look at it. You got to figure out, okay, this needs some more shaping, whatever it is. Like it's a lot of just really trying to, like push things as far as you can go to the point where you're like getting uncomfortable. Um, Cause you have to break out of your comfort zone in order to like see your actual potential. Like your potential is always beyond what you think is there. So you have to push, you have to push up against the things that make you uncomfortable. Like, Oh shit. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm capable of shooting a band like this or capturing the audio this well or whatever it is, or I don't think I'm capable of writing a review that's going to convey the way that I feel about this record, whatever it is. Like you have to be able to like, you have to be okay with being uncomfortable because once you start being uncomfortable, like you start thinking about things differently. Um, And I think that if there's a takeaway or some sort of curriculum, it's that it's like teaching you to be okay in that environment and teaching you to um, like, figure out how to like play that game of chess. Like, okay, I'm at this level now. How do I get to the next step? Like it's again, not a linear move. It's going to be a very nonlinear thing. It might be circular. It might be, you know, wavy, whatever it is, but you're going to have to ride that wave and you have to do it, you know, with with the understanding that there could be some, you know, a, a, a negative downturn, but it's also about like, it's also about like seeing where inflection points happen and being able to like ride that inflection point. Like, so for example, like this summer I was able, I, you know, I was humbled enough to have um, articles written in both Rolling Stone and the New Yorker and that those both came out right before the rage thing happened, you know? So it was a lot of just, um, you know, realizing, okay, there's a shift happening right now. And what can I do to like, you know, you don't want, that momentum from that shift to just die down because then you, you literally have to start from scratch the next time you want something to help or what you want something to happen. Like you have to piggyback off that momentum of things that are happening. So the, if there's this theoretical course, it's also about like, you know, you have to be able to recognize when something good has happened and how do you parlay that into something even better? Like, how do you, how do you keep riding that momentum towards something else? It's like, you know, it's 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 literally it's it's literally just physics, you know. At, at some point, you realize it's just physics. Like, how do you continue this? You know, the the ball, the snowball is going down the hill, right? How do you keep it from stopping? How do you, how do you keep it
1: going? Well, if there's anything that you do, it's I always love that you have a mix of what the average person would consider like a crazy, tedious, arduous project, but you're like, nah, this is business as usual. And then also just the casual return to just shooting shows, even if the headliners are unknown, even if the rooms aren't totally full, you go right back into the regular mode that kept you there. And that's one of the things I think that separates you, as you were talking about, to keep momentum going. The, uh, the, the erroneous idea would be, well, you know, I just shot Madison Square Garden, so if you think I'm just going to come to your 100-person show, <laughs> fuck you. And really, you couldn't have been more on the other side of things. Like, nah, we, we started here. This is where we're at. You know, it's cool we did the rage thing, but now I'm back to work. Building the craziest fucking NASA-looking uh, data center I've ever seen in a normal human being's house. While you're randomly just shooting nighttime shows all over the city. It's incredible what you've managed to accomplish. And it's a story that continues to expand. I think you touched on, you know, enough to write a book, and I think it's something that you should give weight to, working on a story with someone who knows how to put these things together because there's just enough already in what you've done and a linear path to teach others, like, bigger lessons than just how to shoot a show, but, like, how to accomplish things and how to, you know in league with the DIY spirit of what we all are a part of. I think there's a lot of lessons that could be learned if you wrote a book, man, and I hope you get to do it. Um, before we rock out, is there anything that you have coming up very recently or in general you want to talk about?
2: Um, Trying to think. I, I guess one point I wanted to, I forgot to mention, is that one of the, one of the cool impacts that's been happening from these raid shows is, you know, uh, really... What I what I try to do with the channel is I'm constantly trying to cast a wide net because you don't know like listen I film grindcore I film metalcore hardcore punk you know everything in between I'm trying to film all things under the, under the sun right so I don't expect everyone to like every band that I film but I the way that I look at it is you know if you follow the channel long enough you're gonna find something that you like and it could be the gateway that gets you to start going to shows or maybe you want to start a band whatever it is so one of the one of the for me you know it didn't end with filming rage, right? Like rage was, you know, a, was was part of this journey. But one of the cool things I've been seeing is I've been getting a lot of comments from people saying, oh, I, I had no idea what Hate by Six is until, you know, Tom Marilla posted that video that you shot and he tagged you. But now I'm like, I'm on your YouTube channel and I'm watching, I'm watching End It. And I'm watching Off The Tracks and I'm watching Youth of Today videos. It's, it's amazing to see that, like that 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 funnel, that really is what I'm, what, what I'm trying to build, right? It's like, you know, in, in a way I was trying to get Rage's attention by building this channel and doing it, but it's not like, wow. You know, it's it's bringing more people into um, this this community. And I, I know that, uh, you know, I think some people take issue with the fact that uh, I'm sort of like the anti-gatekeeper. You know, <laughs> I make hardcore a little too accessible for some people, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, listen all i'm trying to do is show people the door can't force them to walk through it if they walk through it hopefully they're chill if they're not chill it's up to the community to either you know show them the way or show them the door if that makes sense Um,
1: it makes a lot of sense i also i also would say that at this stage with the amount of media that comes out through social media You're not a hardcore kid if you watch 10,000 hours of of Hey, Five, Six shows. (laughs) You know, like you got to put time, blood, sweat, and tears into this thing, not only as a consumer digitally, but you got to be in the...
2: You got to be part of
1: it. Yeah, and and because otherwise you're just getting one dimension. You're You're a viewer, and it's one of the greatest things that you could ever get your life... Surrounded, you know, or immersed in, I would say, would be to to see hardcore punk in the flesh, and see if it gives you that tingle down your spine, like oh, this is scary but also fun. Yeah. Or you know, but um, I think you do point people in the right direction, and then, then they have to go the distance after that, you know. And I think yeah, it's easy to say, and I would see people like complaining about stuff. My biggest my biggest takeaway with Hate Five Six is that another person would already figured out a way to paywall this stuff, would already been like, yeah, I used to do that, but, you know, I'm missing out on a lot of profit. And it just amazes me that you've been able to stick to your guns, stick to being able to do this. You know, you have a massive support from the community through Patreon, which is like the cleanest way to have your art and work supported without constantly putting your hand out because the Patreon people... Are receiving stuff for their money so it's an even it's an even thing for both sides it's incredible i know so many i I can name so many different entities in hardcore that would have been like all right now it's time to really make some more money here and and just kudos to you just for keeping it a hundred like you always have
2: i appreciate that
1: yeah in terms
2: of what's next i'm not sure like i said um you know, it's not like I have a, the next goal in mind. I think right now, I'm kind of just like, you know, i just gonna. I'm. I, I, I. feel free. You know, like I said, that that I got that brass ring, and now I can. I'm just enjoying the carousel ride for a little bit. And I'm sure I'll have another goal at some point. But right now, it's like you know what, I'm just gonna go shoot. You know, I just did a. I just did a live uh, studio. I haven't done the studio sessions in a while. I did them during the pandemic. I just had a band from Tacoma, Washington, come through. We did a. We did a studio session at Landmine. So I, I did that. Was today. that the denial of to- life? Yeah. Denial of life. So we did that. Um, you know, I'm going to be shooting probably a couple of fests this, uh, this winter, you know, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, unfortunately doing the rage the month with rage I had that, that literally meant I had to forfeit a month's worth of editing. So I have a massive backlog of, you know, the, I filmed that tied down Detroit fest. I filmed this is hardcore wild Rose and Calgary. So right now, and probably for the next, you know, for the foreseeable future is like, yeah, I'm going to keep filming shows, but I really need to play catch up with, um, with, uh, with my editing. And, you know, I want to give a shout out to all my, my Patreon subscribers and supporters who understand that, you know, I had to take some time off to, to literally execute my dream and and execute on it, um, at the cost of having to, you know, put my editing on hold for a little bit. So I want, you know, everyone who supports the channel and understands that I just want to say that means a lot that you are, you know, you understand that I had to go do, I had, I, I had to do this for me, you know, um, you know, it's it's something that I had to do, but the content that everyone is waiting for has been waiting for is coming. <laughs> so that's sort of what I'm i focused on right now. But yeah, I think uh, just going to keep shooting, um, trying to break my my record of number of shows filmed per year. I think uh, I'm in I'm in the high six hundreds right now. Number of bands I filmed in 2022. I'm hoping to break 700. Um, if I could break 800, that would be a record. But we'll see. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. But um. Yeah.
1: Not well, a bad way to go, man. Hey, you know, there's a lot of people who get to the point after achieving their their dream that they look to fold up and start an entire other enterprise. There's other people who look at their own work and then churlishly or selfishly decide that they haven't been rewarded as well as they should have been in the past and they changed methods. The fact that your methods are staying the same, the fact that your eye is still on the prize, the fact that you've taken heed that you have now you know, achieved something that if you would have told yourself as a young teenager that you would have done, you never would have believed them, and you're still back in the original process, helping out new bands, just doing the regular everyday work. It just shows the character who you are, and it shows your steadfast resolve to state to of the program and I think that's what's going to keep you going for the next 20 years is the fact that the program doesn't change it just gets upgraded and I just appreciate you and the work you do and your friendship and we did miss you on the Saturday we did miss you on the Saturday of this hardcore but we were glad you could make it um why don't you close out any final thoughts you have for me and the people about things you got going on or just general thoughts and just thank you for coming on. For your third time in ninety four fucking episodes. Yeah, hopefully people aren't sick of hearing from me.
2: I'm <laughs> sure they are. Yeah, it's uh, uh, I definitely have. Uh, I got, I got, I got some fans and I got some stands. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, doubt my parents are gonna hear this, but I want to give them a shout out. They, it's, it's interesting. I think everything that happened this summer with the Rolling Stone, New Yorker, and the Rage thing. I, both of my parents are very, very proud of me. My dad's always been very excited for me doing eight by six. My mom has been very skeptical about it, but she was calling me throughout the rage tour being like, Oh, I'm watching some clips on YouTube. The rage tour looks awesome. I hope you're having fun. Um, the, the other day, uh, we were, we were at the store and she saw that she saw someone, an employee at the store who had a beard or something who she just, she thinks everyone who has a beard probably listens to punk and hardcore. So she's like, do you know my, so she, she goes up to this, this little guy, this, this guy who's working and she says, do you know my son he, right here? He, do you know him? He's he's the guy who films all the bands, and he's like, "What are you talking about, lady?" <laughs> yeah, so I want to give that a shout out to my mom, uh, especially. Uh, it's I think for me, probably the most rewarding thing to come out of all this is to see that she's finally proud of what her what her idiot um, non conforming son has decided to to dedicate to dedicate his life to.
1: Man, that's absolutely fucking awesome. Your parents rule. And I just love that you had such an amazing summer after I think when we first started talking about this, the first episode was a lot of, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And the second episode was more like taking charge of what you can do with the things that you have in front of you and to just see what you have going on now, what you have accomplished. It's amazing to have been a part of your rise and Look forward to eating some food with you and just bullshitting. I love you, man. Thank you for coming back home. Appreciate it. Well, that's it. This is the third time we've had Sonny on. His story speaks for himself. I hope he does write a book. I hope he continues to do what he does. Need to say, if you want to support Hey56, the best way that you can do it would be a Patreon supporter. You click on that link, you can give him a dollar a month, $5 a month. It's a weird thing. To think about but that five dollars Goes into all the Different things that he has going on It helps him get equipment It helps him travel It allows him to Donate ten thousand Fucking dollars towards um, Abortion funds There's a lot of selflessness In the work that he puts into And his story is fantastic And I'm glad we got that continue Checking back in on him And seeing it so if you want To support Sonny that's the best way Wanna support this hardcore podcast? Just tell your friends. Make sure you go to Philly HC shows on the Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, and follow. You know, things are simple. I'm not doing the Patreon thing. Got some things coming up with YouTube, got some new things going on, a lot of great episodes. Thank you for
0: listening. Thank you for supporting. And talk to you next week.